Well, Grace Bible Fellowship, it's, it's been kind of a bittersweet time, at least for me, the last few days. It's kind of, on the one hand, it's been a, a wonderful Christmas time, and we've spent some time with, with some of your families and had a, a wonderful time. At the same time, the, the last couple of weeks, as far as church things goes, have been slightly more difficult than usual. The, the sermon that I preached two weeks ago on governing authorities, obedience, submission, and tyranny has been the most listened to sermon ever at our church. Uh, I think there's probably something like 800, 900 views on our, our YouTube page, whereas I, I think we usually get like 30 or 40 or something pretty low like that. As you know, Pastor James at Grace Life Edmonton, where I used to serve as the associate pastor, um, he preached a remarkably similar sermon um, the week following mine, and they were also fined on that same day $1,200 for not complying with the government guidelines. We've been on the news on CBC and CTV. They even quoted from my sermon and from Pastor James's sermon on the news. And since then, I've been getting emails from people who must have seen the news wishing me a speedy death from COVID, asking me to resign my Alberta health card. I haven't replied to any of those emails, but I would just say to you guys that, you know, I'm willing to die from COVID if necessary. I'm willing to resign my Alberta health card if the government will take it away from me, but I'm not willing to stop the worship of God's people and the preaching of God's Word. That was the whole point of the message two weeks ago that God has commanded us to worship in certain ways. And we as believers are ones who put Him above everything else. He is number one and therefore we follow Him whatever the cost. And I stand by that message 100% still today. I just wanted to let you know that. The only thing that I would do differently if I could go back and do it again is that I would add more gospel content because I didn't think that so many people would listen to that message. It was really a message for you guys, the church, and, and not so much for the world. And so if I knew that so many people would have listened to it, maybe I would have made it a little bit longer and put a little more gospel in that. But I want to say just kind of publicly that, that we're not endangering anyone here, right? There's, there's nobody here that doesn't want to be here. You are here because you want to be here because your own conscience has been your guide in this time and you have wanted to be at church and worshiping with God's people and sitting under God's word. And so I just reiterate what I told you the other day that you need to follow your own conscience. You know, there, there's some people in the world that I'm getting emails from and they're, and they're thinking that, that I'm the tyrant and that I'm telling you that you must disobey the government. And that's exactly really the opposite of what's going on. The government is the tyrant and they're telling us what we need to do. They think that, that you, uh, Grace Bible Fellowship, are, are mindless drones that do whatever I tell you to do, and it's just not the case. That you're following me into some dangerous, maskless, virus-spreading gathering. But in reality, again, the government is the tyrant telling us that we're not allowed to make our own 
choices on these matters. And again, for the public, those who might listen to this next message, we are not sick. Right? We are, we are not sick. We are healthy people. Months ago, many of us have had COVID. I haven't heard of a case of COVID for, for, for two or three months at least around here. And we don't go and, and leave this gathering of healthy people and then go and breathe on everybody at the grocery store, right? We, 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 we go home. We're healthy. We, we go out into public and, and nobody needs to be anywhere near us if they don't want to be near us. Nobody has to come within six feet of me if they don't want to do so. Anybody concerned about getting sick is entirely safe. They don't have to come here. They don't need to be within six feet of any of us. And to my knowledge, there's one couple who is part of Grace Bible Fellowship who decided not to attend our church at this time, and we're 100% supportive of their decision. We're not shaming them. We're, we're, we're happy if that's what they want to do. We are, we are happy to have them stay at home and live stream the service. And besides that one couple, again, everybody is here of their own will. And we're here because we believe that Jesus conquered death. We believe that Jesus died and rose again from the dead. And by his death on the cross, Jesus killed death. Now that doesn't mean that we won't die, but it does mean that those who trust in him will live again, though they die. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, every one of us will die at some point of something. And everyone will be resurrected as, as well. Some will be resurrected to eternal life. And some will be resurrected to eternal judgment in hell. And we are here because we believe eternal life is more important than temporal life. We believe eternal death in hell is worse than physical death on earth. We, and and really we Christians alone, have the words of eternal life. We have the message of salvation. We have the message of hope. We have a message that speaks of better things than living 84 years in isolation, loneliness, and some kind of a pseudo-physical health. We have the message about the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. And sadly, the world does not know this message. They don't know our God. The world doesn't understand our priorities, and and we shouldn't really expect them to. And they will persecute us because they don't know our God. And the church has always been persecuted, or, or at least often throughout history, the church has been persecuted. Jesus said this, listen to John 15, 18 and following here. Jesus said, quote, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Throughout history, the church has been persecuted for its allegiance to Jesus Christ. And this might be helpful for some of you as you've been thinking and processing what's been happening and what's even happening across Canada and in in the United States right now. Whenever the church has been persecuted, they've been persecuted under false charges. The early Christians, you may or may not know this, but the early Christians were called cannibals because they ate the Lord's body in the Lord's Supper. And so they were accused of being cannibals, and out of fear of these horrible cannibals, they were persecuted and killed. They were called atheists, because they refused to worship Caesar and the pantheon of Roman gods, and so they were called atheists. They were blamed for the the fire of Rome that happened under Nero, and they were persecuted for that reason. Centuries later, they were called schismatic, divisive, lawless, because they held to the Scriptures above the teaching of men. Governments and religious authorities persecuted and opposed the church, and and again, usually for reasons beyond that they faithfully preach the gospel. Usually the reason that is given for the persecution is, is not a true reason of what's going on. And so when we think about that, we might ask, well, why did the world make up false charges against the church? Why did they make up false charges, char- charges against the Christians? And I would propose at least two reasons. First of all, the world wants to justify its hatred for God. It doesn't sound good to say, you know, these people are, are devoted to serving their God and we hate their God and therefore we hate them. It's much easier to justify persecution under other reasons. And secondly, the world does this because it's empowered by Satan. Behind the world system is the devil who hates God and, and he works through the world system to destroy the church. Satan is the father of lies and he uses lies to promote his wicked plans against God's people. And I say this just just really to try to prepare you for what may be coming. The world isn't going to look at us and say, oh, what faithful people who are committed to serving their God and each other no matter what. In fact, what they're saying right now, and these are just going to be a couple of quotes from some of the emails I've gotten this week, quote, how can you be so irresponsible as to lead naive members of your congregation into such a perplexing and antisocial direction, end quote. Or, quote, your reckless and self-centered guidance in this time of extreme difficulty is upsetting and dangerous to anyone foolish enough to listen to your directions, End quote. Another gentleman said that he finds it, quote, hard to believe that anyone could be so uncaring and misinformed. And he went on to say, quote, why don't you just spend some time unmasked in the company of people infected by COVID and God will take care of the rest and rid the world of the plague that people like you are. You make me sick. 
end quote. Now, I just, that one, I just get a kick out of that one because I, I think he means I literally make him sick because I, you know, I'm spreading COVID everywhere and I, I metaphysically, that's not the right word, metaphorically make him sick in, in the way that he sees the, the world. But the, you see, these are the kinds of things that, that the world's going to say against us, right? They're, they're going to, they're going to make up lies to justify the, the wickedness that they're going to bring against us. And, and literally, because people think we're spreading this virus, they actually are so angry at us that they would persecute us, that they would, they would think that it's a wonderful thing to, quote, rid the world of the plague that people like you are. And I share some of these things just anonymously, just so that you can see the way that the world and the government are going to spin this. Now, for every nasty email that I got, I just, I just want you to know I probably got 10 encouragements this week. Um, even, even one email from somebody I don't know that was just thankful that we are open and, and, and that, that we are serving the Lord, just trying to encourage us. And so the, the encouragement to the, the nastiness has been about 10 to 1, but there might be a day when, when we need to stand almost alone as believers. And so this week, as I was working on, on part two of the thriving marriage, and I thought, I thought earlier last week, well, what, what would be better to kind of bring in the new year than to help our marriages and to, to think about uh, us having these thriving marriages in this next year? But by, by late Tuesday this week, I, I realized with all the emails coming in and all the people listening to the sermon that I, I just couldn't preach a sermon on marriage right now. And so what I thought is that we need some encouragement for the new year. Some encouragement that, that might fortify us for the coming year, whatever might come. You know, I love what the Lord told the prophet Ezekiel. Listen to this, Ezekiel 3-4. He, he said to me, that is, God said to me, Ezekiel, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint I have made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. And so sometimes God's people need hard foreheads. Right? Sometimes we need to have fire in our bones. Sometimes we need a resolve to stand firm in the strength of the Lord. And I want to take you to a passage today that is designed to empower you to run well for the Lord, whatever might happen in this new year. It's a passage designed to encourage endurance in the face of trials. And so if you haven't already, I would like you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> I 
We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 today, but I'll read from verse 1 all the way to verse 4. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now, the book of Hebrews was, was probably written when Nero was the emperor of Rome. And his reign was one of the most severe times of persecution in the history of the church. It was under Nero that both Paul and Peter were martyred. Government policy at the time was to persecute Christians. Christianity was illegal, punishable by death. And the recipients of this letter had a decision to make. Would they continue to believe in Jesus Christ and face persecution, or would they deny him to escape persecution? Now, how would you do if you were faced with that kind of a decision? The Hebrews were tempted to return to Judaism, which was a a legal religion according to Roman law. And if they stopped confessing Christ, they could return to Judaism and live in earthly peace. And in the midst of this temptation, the author of Hebrews wrote them to encourage them not to let go of Jesus Christ. The argument of the book is, is basically... Hold fast to your confession because Jesus Christ is better than everything. The first section of the book shows that Christ is better than anyone who went before him because he is the Son of God. He's better than Moses, or sorry, he's better than the prophets, 1, 1 to 3. He's better than the angels, Hebrews 1, 4 to 2, 18. He's better than Moses, chapter 3, 1 to 19. Chapters, chapter 4 to the, chapter 10, verse 25 shows that Jesus has a better priesthood. As a priest, he died to make atonement for sin and his sacrifice of himself appeased the wrath of God to accomplish the forgiveness of his people's sins. He died to bring us to God. And at the end of chapter 10, and why don't you just turn back there, 10, 19, It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. And so since we have this great high priest and this this access to God through him, verse 21, and and since we have a, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so Jesus opened the way into God's presence by the sacrifice of himself. Therefore, as believers, we ought to have confidence to draw near to God. And the flow of thought that that really that leads up to our text is significant for us today. Let, let's just, I just want you to think about this, and and you might not have all of these verses in mind, but let me just give you the kind of the flow of thought. First of all, in ten nineteen to twenty five, Jesus Christ made a way for His people to draw near to God. We can be cleansed from our sin, and we can draw near to God through Jesus Christ. And so we need to hold fast to Christ. And we need to continue to gather with one another. That's what that section talks about. And then secondly, in 1026 to 31, there's this warning. And and the author says, basically, if you don't hold fast, if if you fall away from Jesus Christ, if you sin willfully, you will be lost. And so there's this warning to them, don't turn away from Jesus Christ. And then in verse 32 to 35, what he tells them there is, is that you've, you've already been holding fast. Sorry, it's really probably verse 32 to, to 39 there of chapter 10. It, it, you, you've already been holding fast. And he reminds them of what they had already suffered. Look at chapter 10 and verse 36. He says, For you have the need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so in verse 36, the author says, what you need right now, you know, and and if you look at verse 32, in the former days, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And so the, the Hebrews were starting to enter into some, some difficulty, some persecution. Like we saw in verse 3 or verse 4, they hadn't yet shed their blood for that, that res- as they resisted that persecution, but they're, they're beginning to, to face persecution. And again in verse 36, therefore you have the need of endurance. You need endurance. And what is the key to endurance? How can a believer endure through difficult times? And according to the author of Hebrews, the key to endurance is faith. And so enter chapter 11. Chapter 11, as you probably know, is the great hall of faith. And he shows that that those who live for God before endured the difficulties that they faced by faith. And then in our text, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the author gives them this wonderful exhortation to endure. And he says, run with endurance. Run with endurance. 
And then right after our text, in 12.3 to 17, there's this great section on discipline. And and he says, in effect, "In, in these difficulties that you are facing, God is treating you like sons. And he's working in your life to produce the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so can you see the flow of argument here? Jesus opened the way to God. But if you don't have Jesus, you don't have salvation. There is no other way of salvation. And he says, you've already started to follow Jesus and you've already started to endure. And what you need now is to keep going. And the way to keep going, the way to endure is by faith. And then after laying all of that out, the author then calls them to endure. And so as we look at our text and this call to endure, we're going to see, first of all, we're going to look at the command to live the Christian life with endurance. And then secondly, we're going to see three keys to living the Christian life with endurance. And so there's the command and then there's the keys. We can endure... The, the author of Hebrews is saying we can endure if we, if we hold to these three keys of endurance. We can endure, number one, if we follow our predecessor's example. We can endure, number two, if we forsake every hindrance. And we can endure, number three, if we focus on Jesus. And so the three keys are, are three F's. That makes it easy for you to remember. We need to follow, we need to forsake, and we need to focus. And so we could call the, at least the second half of this message three F's so that you don't fail in endurance. Right? You see that? Three F's so that you don't fail in endurance. And these keys are designed to help us make it through the most difficult of circumstances. These keys will help you to endure. But even if you're not going through a trial right now, even if everything's going easy in your lives, these three keys will help prepare you for future trials because all of us face trials in this life. And so we have here a a command to run with endurance. And the run that the Spirit is talking about here is is the run of the Christian life. And one of my hopes for you today is to, to light a fire in your heart to live more fully for Jesus Christ. And so if you're a Christian here, this text is applicable to you. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this message will help you because in this passage we see Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith who endured the cross to save his people from their sins. And three days later he rose from the dead and sat down at the right hand of God. And this text asks you, if you're not a believer, to look to this Jesus to be forgiven of your sins. And so before we we get into the keys to living with endurance, we need to look at the commandment to endure. And so look with me at verse 1. This is the first one in your outline this morning. The command to live the Christian life with endurance. The command to live the Christian life with endurance. Again, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now the translation of this passage, at least in the NASV, could make it seem like the author's trying to tell us two things. Like he's trying to say we need to let, us, let lay aside, 
and let us run. Let us lay aside every weight and let us run with endurance. But in the original Greek text, there's only one main verb, and that is the verb, let us run. And so the main point of this whole passage is let us run with endurance. And this is a command to endure, and we're to run the race that is set before us. This is a word picture used to describe the Christian life. You see, Christianity is like running a race. And the word race is is literally an athletic competition. It means a contest. Sometimes the word was used to speak of a struggle or a fight. But because it's used with the word run, we, we know that we're speaking of a race. And so I want you to think of the Olympics this afternoon, right? You know what running is. I don't like running unless I'm chasing a basketball. Running is, is hard work. It's, it's not easy to do. Running a race is even harder. It's a demanding, grueling, agonizing thing. To run a race in the Olympic style, as this text kind of indicates, it would require the utmost of self-discipline, determination, and perseverance. An Olympic-level race takes everything that you've got. And listen, Christianity is no different. This race is an illustration of the Christian life, and Christianity is compared with a race. And some of the Hebrews, they, they seem to have started well, But when problems and persecution arose, they began to lose their enthusiasm and their confidence. And they started looking back to the old way of Judaism. They started looking at the persecution and the suffering around them and ahead of them, and they began to slow down. They wanted to quit running. They wanted to drop out of the race. Some of them had even left it altogether. And what they needed was endurance. Endurance is the capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty. For what they were going through, they needed patience, fortitude, steadfastness, perseverance, endurance. And the picture of a race is a perfect illustration of the Christian life. What do you get at the end of a race? You get a prize, you get a reward. And it's the same in Christianity. Now, the Christian life is not a race against other Christians. The idea here isn't necessarily to beat anyone. It's not a a competition in that sense. We're all in a personal race to the finish. And the focus is on endurance. It's a, a race to the end, not a race against others. And the point is to finish the race. The point is to not give up until the race is over. Look again at at verse 1. The race is the race that is set before us. Each Christian has his or her own challenges in this life. We all have our own cross to bear, and God has sovereignly planned what each of us will encounter in this life. It's the race that is set before us by God in His sovereign goodness to us. God promises in this race according to 1 Corinthians 10.13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape 
that you may be able to endure it. And so in every season of life, in every circumstance, we need to endure whatever is set before us. The idea of this holding on is the theme of Hebrews. The author wants these people that he loves to hold on, to not give up, and so he exhorts them, let us run with endurance the race set before us. The verb translated, let us run, is a unique construction in Greek that we don't have in English. It's an imperative, it's a, a command in which the author includes himself. And so it's a command, but it's not you must run, but it's, it's we must run. He, he includes himself. And one grammar said of this construction that it, it's used, quote, to urge someone to unite with the speaker in a course of action upon which he has already decided. And so the author is saying, I have decided to run for Jesus and and to endure these trials, and I urge you to join with me. See how pastoral this author is? It's a great example for us. The author is coming alongside these dear people saying, in the midst of these trials, I'm going to hold fast to Jesus Christ, whatever the cost. Will you run this race with me? And this is a command that's directly applicable to us. We are called to run this race as well. We are called to live for Jesus Christ with all the strength that we have and with all the strength that He gives. And in our text, it's called the race. And often Scripture speaks about the Christian life with words like these. It's a, it's a competition. It's a contest. It's a challenge. It's a fight. It's a battle. It's a war. Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. And that same word, that word strive there comes from the same root as the word race in our text. And it means to fight or to battle. See, becoming a Christian can be like a fight or a battle. You need to diligently throw off every sin and enter into life. You need to diligently throw off even everything else and and take Jesus Christ for all that He is. And staying a Christian can be like a fight too. 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so fight the good fight of faith. 2 Timothy 4.7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You see, we are not called to a life of ease. Many Christians don't live like they're in a race. And, and we can get just so, so easily ingrained in the world and get so comfortable that we, we treat our Christian life like it's an Alaskan cruise, right? You get on the ship and you relax and you just enjoy the ride. But that's not how God describes the Christian life. It's a race. It's a struggle. It's a battle. It's a fight. This world is not our home and we have not entered into our rest yet. Now is the time to fight to win. 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul says, do you, not, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? And then he encourages them and he says, so run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The prize is assured to all who compete lawfully. And Paul says, so run that you may obtain it. It might be a difficult run, but there is a a reward at the end. Eternal life, unending fellowship with God. And according to our text, this is a long distance race. It says there, run with endurance. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And there will be obstacles and weariness and exhaustion, but we must continue to endure if we are to win. And again, we're not trying to win against other racers. We're trying to make it to the finish line. We're, we're encouraged to make it to the end. Listen to what John MacArthur said. He said, quote, Nothing makes less sense than to be in a race that you have little desire to win. Yet I believe the lack of desire to win is a basic problem with Christians. They're content simply to be saved and to wait to go to heaven. But in a race or in a war or in the Christian life, lack of desire to win is unacceptable. Paul believed this principle. He had determination. He did not pursue comfort, money, great learning, popularity, respect, position, lust of the flesh, or anything but God's will End quote. And again, he said, quote, In God's army, we never hear at ease. To stand still or to go backwards is to forfeit the prize. End quote. And so we need to run. That is the command. Not that we would lose our salvation, but this is a warning to us that if we are true Christians, we will run this race and we will endure to the end. And so we need to pay attention to this exhortation. We need to run with endurance. And so whatever you might be going through or whatever may come in this new year, I just want to encourage you, Grace Bible Fellowship, to endure. Keep going don't get up, don't give up, endure, persevere. And sometimes that's all we need is just simply the command. All we need is the exhortation. But other times, especially when it comes to living in the midst of trials and temptations, we need to know how to do it. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews gives us next. And so in the rest of our text, we'll see three keys to living the Christian life with endurance. And the first key to living the Christian life with with endurance is number one, we can endure if we follow our predecessor's example. The example of those who went before us. And we see that in verse one where he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... The word translated, therefore, shows a strong connection to what came before. The reason we ought to live the Christian life with endurance is because that is exactly what our predecessors did. Those who came before us ran with endurance, and we see their example in chapter 11. They had the kind of faith that endures. A literal translation of this clause would be, therefore, we also... 
Since we are having so great a cloud of witnesses, they had endurance and we also should have it. These heroes of the faith believed God and they gave up everything to follow hard after Him and we ought to do the same. They are so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, now that kind of sounds weird like they're floating in the air watching us or something like that, but a, a cloud was a common metaphor for a group. We might say a, a mob or a flock. It just means that, that there was a whole host of witnesses Cloud has nothing to do with them being in heaven or looking down. There's just a a bunch of witnesses. That's the idea here. There's a lot of people who endured the kind of difficulties that we are facing right now or even worse things than we will face. Listen to the description of of some of their, their lives. These are real people who ran the race of faith. Look at verse 33 of chapter 11. It says, "...who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice." obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth." These people lived for God and they paid a price for it in this world and now they are eternally blessed. These witnesses are our incentive to endure. They are our motivation. Not because they're watching us. They don't, they don't witness us. They witness to us. And they testify to us bearing witness that God is faithful to bring us through every difficulty. In verse 2, we're told to look to Christ. And so we don't so much look at our predecessors. Instead, we know that if they made it, then we can make it too. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. All the Old Testament saints had the same nature as us. In fact, if anything, they had less light than us, less knowledge than us. They endured. God empowered them to endure to the end and He will empower you. We have the same God and He can do the same things through us if we trust Him. And so the first key to enduring the difficulties of the Christian life is that we can endure if we follow our predecessor's example. The second key to living with endurance is number two, we can endure if we forsake every hindrance. We can endure if we forsake every hindrance. Look again at verse 1. It says there, a little bit into verse 1, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. 
Again, I just want to remind you that, that lay aside is not the main verb in the original. It's, it, it describes what we must do to prepare for the running. And so if we're going to run, we need to lay aside certain things in order to run. The main verb let us ru- is let us run, and the manner we are to run is by laying aside certain things. One Greek grammarian described this construction this way. He says, quote, A greater emphasis is placed on the action of the main verb, and the participle is something of a prerequisite before the action of the main verb can occur. End quote. Now, let me explain that to you. In order to run, what the author is saying is we first need to get rid of any excess baggage. And so the idea is lay aside the hindrance and then run. That's the sense of this here. Lay aside was used literally for the removal of clothes. The idea is take them off. And it was also used figuratively of all kinds of habits and hindrances. And so lay them aside, put them away. And we're called to lay aside or, or put off is every weight or every encumbrance and the sin. And so there's two things that we are told to forsake. We, we must first, A, in your outline, A, we must first forsake every weight. Forsake every weight. Can you imagine somebody trying to run with a refrigerator strapped on their back? Obviously, that's not going to work, right? Every weight must be taken off. And weight simply means a weight. It's a a very simple word. It means something heavy. Every runner knows that they can't carry around excess weight. And if you've ever watched those, those long-distance runners in the Olympics, have you ever seen these long-distance runners, male or female? They are the, the skinniest people that you've ever seen, right? They're, there's almost, they're, they're very muscular, but there's no excess weight on those people. In contrast to the sin in the next clause, this weight that the author is talking about isn't necessarily something sinful in itself. And this verse used to really bother me. What, it, what weight is this author talking about? What is the weight that we're supposed to lay aside? Remember, this is a, a metaphor describing a runner. And, and notice he says that we're to lay aside every weight. And so I don't think the author has anything specific in mind here. Generally, the Christian is to lay aside anything and everything that might hinder them from enduring. Is there anything in your life that is hindering you from running full speed for Jesus Christ? We are called to lay that aside. Now, we're not talking about sin at this point. I'm talking about anything that would slow you down, divert your attention, sap your energy, dampen your enthusiasm for the things of God. What might be a hindrance for one Christian might not be a hindrance to another. And so each one of us is to examine his or her own life. Maybe you have a hobby or a friend or a preference that is hindering your walk with the Lord. Think about it maybe this way. If something is not helping you live for Jesus, 
it very well could be hindering your walk with Him. Again, if it slows you down, diverts your attention, saps your energy, dampens your enthusiasm for the things of God, then you should lay it aside. You should forsake it. Now, we don't want to be legalistic here. We have a great deal of freedom in Christ, and we can and and should enjoy all kinds of things that God has freely given us. But isn't it true that so many of the things that this world offers only hinders us from living for eternity? Right, the, the things of this world can so easily distract us and our mind gets off of eternity. And so brothers and sisters, I just want to even ask you, are you, are you running a race? Are you in a, a race right now of the Christian life? And it could be that, that some of you, instead of laying aside every weight, have kind of pulled over to the side of the track to admire the weights. Right? You, instead of running the race, you're just, you're looking at the weights. You need to get your eyes off of those weights, lay those aside and, and get back on the racetrack. Maybe it happened so long ago for some of us that we've forgotten that there's even a race going on. And if that's you today, God is saying to you, lay aside every encumbrance and every race and every weight and, and run the race that is set before you. And so let me ask you, are you serious enough about your Christian life? Are you serious enough about your own soul? Are you serious enough about eternity? Are you serious enough about the glory of God that you have forsaken everything in order to live fully for Jesus Christ and the gospel? That is what our text is calling us to do, to lay aside every weight. That's the only way that we're going to be able to endure the difficulties of persecution is if we lay aside those things and set our eyes on Jesus Christ. If, if we are holding on to the things of this world and, and clinging to the things of this world, we will not be able to run with endurance. We will want to go back to those things of the world that we will lose when persecution comes. And so we need to lay aside every weight and get back into the race. The other hindrance that we're called to forsake is entangling sin. And so be in your outline, forsake entangling sin. Hebrews 12.1 says, and sin, which clings so closely. Or the New American Standard translates it this way, and sin, which so easily entangles us. Now, this is a, a difficult clause in the original. Literally, it, it reads, the entangling sin, or the easily ensnaring sin. That word entangling, it only occurs one time in the New Testament, and, and the root adjective of this word means to surround. The root verb has the idea of being pulled away or of being distracted. Sin is viewed as something here that, that surrounds us and pulls us away from the race. And in the original, it's the sin. It's not just sin, but it's the sin. And so there's a debate about what, what is the sin referring to? What is the sin? Is it, is it sin itself? Or does the author have some specific sin in mind? And if there's a specific sin in mind, it's usually identified as 
unbelief or apostasy. And so he's saying, if he's thinking of something specific, he's saying we need to lay aside unbelief or apostasy and run the race. Now, I don't think it's too difficult to to figure this out here because the answer is really easy because as believers, we're to cast off all sin in order to run this race. And actually, if you were committing apostasy, that would disqualify you from running the race at all. Unless you've repented and continue to do so, you're not even in the race. And so we're to forsake entangling sin. And, and let me ask, and, and I've, I've done this so many times, but, but do you realize how serious sin is? One sin, no matter how minor it appears through our distorted lenses, one sin committed, committed against the infinitely holy and glorious God is worthy of an eternity in hell. How many people are in hell today who refuse to repent of just one cherished sin? One sin that you will not give up for the sake of Christ can keep you from everlasting joy in heaven. So we need to lay aside anything and everything that hinders us, whether it is sin or something else, if we would live the Christian life with endurance. And so we can endure, number one, if we follow our predecessor's example, and we can endure if we forsake every hindrance. And now number three, we can endure if we focus on Jesus Christ. We can endure, number three, if we focus on Jesus. Look at verse two. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking is the manner that we are to run. We're to set our spiritual eyes on Jesus like a runner sets his focus on the finish line or the prize. The word suggests the, a looking away from distractions and focusing on Jesus. You see, we can get so easily distracted. John MacArthur again reminds us, quote, some Christians are preoccupied with themselves. They may not be selfish and egotistical, but they pay too much attention to what they are doing, to the mechanics of running. There is a place for such concern, but if we focus on ourselves, we will never run well for the Lord. He continued, quote, Sometimes we are preoccupied with what other Christians are thinking and doing, especially in relation to us, end quote. See, there's a place for examining our hearts, but there's a a danger as well of being overly introspective. We need to set our gaze on Jesus Christ to run the way that God intended. Do you ever get like overly concerned about what others are doing? How they're running? We can get so focused on others that we forget that we have a race set before us. Sometimes we can get focused on other people and we can, we can realize that some people are so incredibly gifted and equipped for ministry and others, others of us are more average, but, but we all as individual Christians have our own race to run. We all have our own talents to use for the master. 
And so the question for each and every one of us is, what is God calling you to do? Or in the words of Ephesians 2.10, what good works has God prepared for you before the foundation of the world? Hebrews 12.2 calls us to get our eyes off of others and on to Jesus so that we can run the race set before us. The point isn't that we need to try to not look at this or that. The point is to focus on Christ. And then we'll see everything else in its proper perspective. Like a runner focuses on the goal and just runs the race. Jesus is the best example of what it looks like to endure. He's the only one who perfectly ran with endurance. And so He's our ultimate example of living by faith. The author calls him, uh, the author, the text calls him the author and perfecter of our faith. Maybe your translation says the, the founder and the finisher or some combination of those. These are two words that further describe who Jesus Christ is in relation to our faith. The first word in, in, our, in your Bible means the leader or the chief leader or the originator, the pioneer, the champion. And the emphasis here seems to be on the sense of the, the pioneer or the, the trailblazer, the, the leader, the one who goes first. Jesus is our trailblazer because He blazed the trail that we follow. Jesus led the way for us. Hebrews 6.19 and 20 tells us that, that Jesus entered God's presence not only as our high priest, but also as the forerunner on our behalf. He's the one that that opened the way for us to follow. The second word there means completer, the finisher, the accomplisher, the perfecter. Jesus is the perfecter of faith because He made faith effective by dying to save sinners from God's wrath. He is also the one in whom faith reached its perfection. He is the perfect example of enduring by faith. And these two descriptions of Jesus are intimately tied together. When we look to Jesus, we need to, according to verse 3, consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Or consider 1 Peter 2.21, For this you have been called, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. In our text, Jesus is held forward as the ultimate example of living and enduring by faith. He led the way. He blazed the trail. He did it perfectly. And now He is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because He was tempted all things as we are, yet without sin. Now the complexities of Jesus' temptation is more than I can get into right now. He was fully God and fully man, but He was tempted through His human weakness. And how did He resist temptation? How did He refrain from giving in to sin? You remember His temptation in the wilderness? He resisted by quoting God's Word, but, but even more specifically, Jesus resisted temptation by believing the truth of God's Word that man was not created to live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
Jesus was tempted to take the easy way, but he resisted because by faith he recognized that God is the only one worthy of worship. That God was the only, that, that God alone was worthy of Jesus' service. We don't often think about Jesus as, as having faith. And obviously, his faith was different than our faith. He dwelt in God's presence before coming to earth as a man. But as a man, Jesus lived by faith. And as a man, he endured temptation by faith. In John twelve twenty seven, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And so Jesus believed that the glory of God and the purpose for which he came was more valuable than his suffering. In Matthew 27, 41, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And so the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they mocked him and they tempted him to come down from the cross. But it was his faith in God that carried him through the taunting and the scourging and the crucifying and the more bitter agony of rejection and desertion his faith sustained him as he bore the wrath of God on our behalf. By faith, Jesus endured the cross. And as a trailblazer and perfecter of faith, he endured that cross. They scourged him. They beat him with rods. They mocked him to his face. They spit on him. He carried the cross. They nailed his hands and his feet to that cross and they crucified him. Jesus was the Son of God and He could have saved Himself at any moment, but He did not do it because it was His Father's will that He die on that cross. He died on that cross to make atonement for sin so that we could be saved. And it was His trust in God, it was His faith that empowered Him to endure the cross. And we need to resist temptation the same way that Jesus did, by believing God's truth. We need to believe that the honor of God's name is more important than our personal comfort. We need to believe that every difficulty we face is a greater opportunity to glorify God. And as the founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus was moved to action. Again, our text says, "...who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross." despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the first thing that we need to deal with as we look at this last little bit is, is the word there translated for in that, that beginning, who for the joy that was set before him. That word for there, that word refers to either a substitution or an exchange. As a, a substitution, it means instead of or in the place of. Instead of the joy that was set before him, or in the place of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Or if it means an exchange, the idea would be that 
It means for or as or, or in the place of. And so the idea would be that in exchange for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And because of this idea of substitution, some people, if you can track with me here for a minute, some people understand this verse to mean that instead of his heavenly joy with the Father, Jesus came down to earth to endure the cross. Instead of joy that he had before, he endured the cross. Others say, no, the the joy that was set before him is later in the verse when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. And I think that's the better view, that the joy that was set before him is is a, a future joy that Jesus looked forward to as he endured the cross. And I think this view is better for a number of reasons. Number one, those who went before us, they all endured by looking to the reward. Right? They believed that, that God is and that He is the, re- the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Look at Hebrews 11.24. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now the second reason that I think that this is the better view is because the the picture of a race fits better with the sense that the joy is at the end. We follow Jesus' example by looking to the joy set before us, which is our inheritance. And the third reason I I think this is the better view is that this very same preposition is used in a a very similar construction. Just a few verses later, look at Hebrews 12 and verse 16. It says there that that we're to, in verse verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And that word for there is the same word that we have in our verse. It wasn't instead of one meal that Esau sold his birthright. It was in exchange for one meal. And so the idea, again, is that Jesus exchanged temporary suffering on the cross for the joy of eternal exaltation. He was looking to the reward by faith. And so Jesus endured the cross. And the construction in Greek looks at the the quality of his death. He endured the cross. He endured a cross. A, A cross was the most horrible and shocking way to die at that time, and even continuing until today. It was, it was a horrible and shocking thing, the cross. And so Jesus endured crucifixion. One commentator said, quote, To die by crucifixion was to plumb the lowest depths of disgrace. It was a punishment reserved for those who were deemed of all men most unfit to live, a punishment for submen. From so degrading a death, Roman citizens were exempt by ancient statute 
the dignity of the Roman name would be besmirched by being brought into association with anything so vile as the cross, end quote. Again, quote, for slaves and criminals of low degree, it was regarded as a suitable means of execution and a grim deterrent to others. But this disgrace Jesus disregarded as something unworthy to be taken into account when it was a question of his obedience to the will of God. End quote. See, there was nothing more brutal than the cross, but Jesus endured the cross. The word endured there is more than just passively accepting death. He actively overcame it. And the idea is that he triumphed over such an extreme form of suffering. He overcame such a terrible death. The verb tense shows that enduring was something that happened and is over. His suffering in this world and all suffering in this world is only temporary. It's always good to remember that whenever we're facing difficulty in this world, whenever we're facing Trials in this life, they are only temporary, but the life to come is eternal. And so Jesus' example of endurance gives us an incentive for faithful perseverance. Jesus endured, despising the shame. He did not allow the shame of the cross to dissuade Him or to cause Him to waver. And then He sat down at the right hand of God. The verb tense there to that he sat down at the right hand of God shows that he sat down at a past time and he continues to sit at the right hand of God. Jesus did not remain dead. He rose from the dead three days later after he was crucified and he was exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. In his suffering, it was his suffering that led to his exaltation. And so Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father even right now. And He is enjoying the joy that was set before Him. He's been exalted to the highest position in the universe, and He has accomplished the salvation of the people that the Father had given Him. And because He endured a cross on our behalf, we will worship Him forever. Even now we confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, And when we run the race set before us, we need to look to Jesus. We must know who Jesus is, that He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And we must know what Jesus did, that He endured the cross for us and for our salvation. He endured the race set before Him. He exchanged the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before Him. And we need to follow His example. We need to pick up our cross remembering that suffering is but for a moment and that it's preparing for us a far exceeding eternal weight of glory. And that reward awaits those who finish the race of the Christian life well. Today we've seen the command to live the Christian life with endurance. And we've seen three keys to living that life with endurance. And so, brothers and sisters, we must obey the command. 
We can endure whatever the world sends, whatever the devil sends our way, whatever trials come to us in this life, we can endure if we follow our predecessor's example. We can endure if we forsake every hindrance, every weight and the entangling sin that holds us back. And we can endure if we focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, the Christian life is compared to an athletic competition The Christian is running a race towards the finish line. And the goal is to endure the difficulties of life and make it to the eternal state. And if you think about an athlete, every successful athlete works extremely hard. They give up all kinds of things to train for the event. They learn good techniques from those who were successful in their event before them. They lay aside anything and everything that would be a hindrance and they focus on the goal and they don't let anything distract them. In order to endure, brothers and sisters, we need to think like athletes. Do you take your Christian life as serious as an athlete who prepares for the Olympics? That's the kind of thing that we're called to in this passage. Do you realize brothers and sisters, that you are in a battle, that you are in a contest, that you are in a war. When Jesus calls a sinner to Himself, He asks them to count the cost. And He he warns them, He warns us that we will need to carry the cross. He says in Luke 14.33, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that He has cannot be My disciple. We, brothers and sisters, are those who have counted the cost. When Jesus asked, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? We answered, nothing. And when he asked, what shall a man give in return for his soul? We are those who answered, everything. We have had our eyes open to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We have realized the value of eternity We counted the cost and we began the race. There's no guarantee that our race will be easy. A race is never easy, but there's a prize at the end. Most athletes train incredibly hard, but they also love what they do, don't they? They they, they love to be involved in what they do. And Christianity is like that as well. It's, It's hard, but we find great joy in knowing Christ and living for Him. We have found, have we not, that Jesus was right when He said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And the more we give up for Jesus, the more that we give up of our lives for His sake, the happier that we find ourselves. And that's how it's going to be for us if we face persecution. The more we lose, the happier we will be. If you're not a Christian today and you've joined us, If you're listening to me on a a live stream or audio, if you're not a Christian, look to Jesus today. He is more valuable than everything this world has to offer. Forsake the passing pleasures of sin and receive the everlasting joy of having Jesus Christ as your Lord. It's better to have Jesus and suffer persecution than to have the whole world and live a comfortable life without Him. And if you are a Christian today, I want to challenge you to to love the race. 
Enjoy every minute of it. Work hard, run hard. But if you're finding it difficult at the moment, I would just tell you to endure. The race won't go on forever. The end will come relatively soon. Jesus finished his race and opened the way for us to have our sins forgiven. He opened the way for us to enter into the presence of God. Others have finished their race and they're in the presence of Christ right now. Now is the time for us to run the race. Throw off anything that hinders. Throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Look to Jesus as your ultimate example and keep going. Don't give up. The race set before us is a race that we are to run with endurance for the glory of God. And so keep it up, brothers and sisters. It won't be much longer. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this text and for this command that You have given each and every one of us to run with endurance. We pray that You would forgive us for where we haven't run well, for where we haven't endured, for where we haven't looked to Christ and to the joy that is set before us. We pray, Father, that You would would strengthen us, that You would give us strength to endure, that we would like those who went before us, that we would would run for You the, the race of faith. We pray that You would help us to lay aside every earthly thing, every weight in our lives, every sin that holds us back. Help us to, to shed these things that aren't helpful and help us to run for Your glory, Lord. Help us to look to our founder and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to set our eyes on Him and to find our joy and our satisfaction in Him alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.